let's have a look at their Bibles. Uh, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to start reading in uh, verse 10. Um, this is a time when Saul, who later on became known as the great apostle Paul, uh, was converted. And um, just an aspect I want to bring out here concerning his beginning and his walk with Jesus Christ. And we read here in verse 10, And there was a certain disciple um, at Damascus named Ananias. And to him um, said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go ye into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold he prayeth. And has seen in the vision a man, this is Saul, he'd seen the vision a man named Ananias coming to him and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. For those that are not aware, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, just briefly, um, the Lord struck him down with a light and he was blinded. And uh, the voice, he couldn't understand where it was coming from. And so he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And so he was left blinded by this at that time. And so in the intervening time, the Lord gave a vision to Ananias and where that Saul was, he had a similar vision. And so this is what we're reading about here. Then Ananias, in verse 13, answered, Lord, I've heard many things of this man, talking about Saul of Tarsus, how that this man, he said, was how much evil he had done to the saints at Jerusalem. See, he thought that the Christians were not looking after God's word, that there was something wrong with these Christian people, and that he was a Jew, a Jew of the Jews. He was a, studied under the greatest doctor of law of his time. He kept the law of God implicitly. And so he even looked to the high priests and others to give him permission to exterminate these Christians, to stop this strange sect that was coming on. And so this is why that uh, Ananias said, well, this man's an evil man, and he's done terrible things to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to hear my name, or to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him great things but he must suffer also for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and he entered into the house and he put his hands upon him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus has appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest and has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately they fell from his eyes as it were being scales. And he received sight forthwith, and he arose, and he was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. And then uh, was Saul certain days with the disciples, which are in or at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, 
that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not he that destroyed that destroyed them that called upon the, this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews that dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. And after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel they might kill him, kill Saul instead. And so then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And Saul came to Jerusalem and essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a, a disciple. And so it goes on talking in similar fashion. And so we see the start of this man Saul, even to the extent that God had, or Christ had given the message to Ananias, he must suffer for my name's sake. But also, in verse 17 there, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit and baptised. So this was the beginning of Paul's ministry. Now for a moment I want to go over and look at the end of his ministry. We'll go over to chapter 20. And it says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church. This is now Paul calling on the elders of the church in Ephesus. Of course this is, as I say, the end of his ministry. And when they were come unto him, he said unto them, You know, from the first day I came into Asia, after what manner that I have been with you in all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me, by the lying in wait of the Jews. They were still out to get him, because he changed sides. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that in bonds, bonds and afflictions, Abide me. But none of these things move me, and neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry that I have received of the Lord, and to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. And wherefore I take you to record this day, that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And so we see this amazing man, a man that changed from one that opposed everything that Christ was to one that went out and he preached the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these words that he spoke to the elders his parting words. I go bound in the spirit, he said, unto Jerusalem. But he never stopped to declare, even though that he knew his life was at an end, 
all the counsel of God. And the very important part I want to dwell on a bit today at the end of verse 24, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. The Amplified Bible puts this verse this way, faithfully to attest to the good news, the gospel of God's grace, his unmerited favour, spiritual blessings and mercy. So what is this telling us? It means that as he was, that he was not in a relationship with God in his natural state. He was far from a relationship with God. But what it means is that this gospel of grace brought him to a point where he was born again. He was baptised, we read, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And there's no doubt about that. When he said in 1 Corinthians 14, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than all of you in Corinth. He was always looking and praying to the Lord in the Spirit that he might receive God's grace more in his life. And that really expresses what the New Testament seeks to convey to all that will listen and hearken to God's words. Grace implies in the New Testament that there is a giver of that grace and there's a receiver of that grace. It's a two-way thing. And the ones that receive it are those that are born again of the water and of the Spirit of God. The very words that Jesus spoke in John 3, that unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you will not see and you will not enter the kingdom of God. The tragedy is that so many people say, I'm saved by grace. But they've got no proof, no evidence. But the Bible teaching very clearly is that unless you're born again, you are not in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is not divine. Jesus preached the gospel to every creature. And that's what is so clear in the word of God. That the word of Jesus Christ the giving of the gospel of his grace and the grace of God, by that we are all receivers of God's grace. You know that before the story of Jesus Christ coming on the scene in Bethlehem, the concept of grace did not appear in the Bible until Jesus Christ was born. And so it is a New Testament teaching to enter into the grace of God. In fact, the word grace, or charis, appears 170 times in the New Testament, and as such, not in the old at all. So what is grace? Charis, in the Greek. It has been described in Bible Dictionary as that which affords joy, pleasure, Delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, grace of speech, goodwill, loving kindness, and favour. It goes on to describe it as the merciful kindness by which God exerting his holy influence upon souls turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in the Christian faith the knowledge, the affection and 
what kindles them to the exercise of all Christian virtues. So the Bible again is bringing out that grace is something we receive from God when we're born again. A Bible scholar named Robert Girdlestone, you have names that write down, he said it is the greatest, the great proportion of passages in what the word grace is found in the New Testament. It signifies unmerited operation of God in the heart of man and it's affected by the agency of the Holy Spirit. So even he wrote in the 1800s, the operation of God is something that is unmerited and none of us deserve it and it's affected by the receiving of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's have a look in Ephesians in chapter 2. Ephesians 2. We'll start reading in verse 4. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, in sins, has quickened or brought to life us together with Christ, for by grace you are saved. It says, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And he talks a little further about us being aliens, Gentiles, from the kingdom of God, the commonwealth of Israel. But he brings us to a point where we come to this new, new situation. To Paul... The self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ was one of the, and the same as the grace of God. Because he knew that it was through the sacrifice of Christ the grace of God came. The grace of God that signifies the generous love or the very gift that God, which is by Jesus Christ's salvation, is bestowed upon man. When we have the grace of God, we're in a state of new blessings being opened unto us. To fully understand grace, the first thing we need to do and why it's so important to God that we're born again, totally the Bible way and not just quoting, oh, but I've, I've, I've got grace, I've been saved by grace, grace rescued me from what I was. You've been born again, oh, no, no, but I've got grace. The Bible says without the Holy Spirit you have no grace. And so to fully understand what we were, we need to understand what we were before we came to the point of being born again. That we have become a Christian in the proper manner. The first point is, of course, is that we were born in sin. Even from our birth and before we were in sin. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin in my mother's womb. The very nature of man is inherent to be sinful. 
the Bible says. So we're born in sin. The second point is that we were guilty of breaking God's holy laws. None of us can live by the law of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, perfect as they might be, we're so imperfect because of our sin nature. We can't live under God's holy laws in the Old Testament. Oh, the Lord, we were really, as the Bible says, we were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. But what we thank God for is that God's Son died for the ungodly, not the godly. Because there are none. The next point is that before we came a Christian, before we came a Christian, we were deserving to die. Brings all these points out at the time we can't go through them. We deserve to die because of the life that we lived in sin. The next point is that we were unrighteous. None of us were good enough. None of us were righteous before God in our natural state. And the last point is that we were without means of justifying ourselves. We couldn't stand up before God in our natural state and say, oh God, but I did this for you and I did that for you. And I'm sure there'll be people, when the Lord comes back, he'll try, they'll try to tell him how good they were. And God is just not interested in that. So spiritually, we were destitute, blind, unclean, and dead. Doesn't sound very good, does it? But spiritually, that's the way that we were. Our souls were destined for everlasting damnation, punishment, death and hell. The wages of sin is death. All these great simple statements are right through the word of God. But most people, as I said, think that grace, that God's going to look after me anyhow, regardless of what I say and what I, what I do. But in his grace, the proper way, God is willing to forgive us and bless us abundantly regardless of what we did in our past life before we come to know him. Even though we don't really deserve it. He treats us so well now that we are in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God teaches us that grace is completely unmerited. The gift of God is unmerited. None of us are worthy. Just bring all these points out so very clearly that we don't really, not one of us here, deserves God's salvation. Let's have a look in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. We'll read it, a few verses here from verse 5. One that we often quote. It says, and hope maketh not ashamed in verse 5 of chapter 5 of Romans because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. You know, so many people quote about having love. They don't understand the love of God at all. They don't have the love of God without the Holy Spirit. They've got natural love, filiae, filios, but they don't have the agape love that Christ gives us when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. When we're spread aboard in our hearts by the Holy Ghost given to us. For when we were without strength, 
when we had no hope, it means, in verse 6 there, in due time, or in the fullness of the time that was prophesied, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will the righteous men, uh, will one die. Yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. They, they, they do it for someone they loved and cared for, for some, not someone that they despised and they rejected. <coughs> Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, that we were reconciled unto God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, by the life of Christ. And not only so, but we also joy, uh, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we've made to receive the atonement, the cancelling of our sins, the way open for that wonderful new way of life that the Lord wants to give us. So we're reconciled. Again, it brings out the point here. Through his death, we've given a free will to decide do we want that or don't we want that. We struggle when we don't understand, though, when we do have it. If we don't know how to work and grow in grace. Receiving the grace of God, the gospel of grace, is only the beginning. We need to grow in that grace. It's a point that is so vitally important for the Lord. The experiences we talk about sometimes, we say about being full of the Holy Ghost. Or the other scriptures talk about being full of grace and power. It's talking of the same thing, of how the grace of God will influence our life. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that we are what we are because what God has made us. And that's exactly what the Paul said. I am what I am because of the grace of my God. Let's have a look in Second Corinthians in chapter 12. Second Corinthians in chapter 12. Start reading in verse 7. Paul is referring to something that people have talked about for many decades about the thorn in his flesh. It says, Unless I should be, this is Paul speaking, should be exalted above measure for the abundance of revelations, the, the revelations that God gave him, there is given unto me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that he might uh, depart from me, uh, that it might, sorry, not he, it might depart from me, This uh, the persecutions and the reproaches we read of in verse 10 there, uh, and the necessities and things that were a distress to him in Christ. These were thorns in his flesh. But what was the answer? The answer is there in verse 9 when he said unto me, this is the Lord speaking, the words of Christ, he said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said in another place, When I am weak, then am I strong. 
because they have to rely more on the Lord. And more gladly, therefore, will rather I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me, and therefore I take pleasure. It's almost a contradiction of terms. To take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so, verse 9 is the key verse. My grace, he said, is sufficient for that. The Amplified Bible puts it this way. But he said to me, my grace, my favour, and my loving kindness and mercy is enough for you, sufficient against any danger, and able to, able you to bear the trouble manfully. For my strength and power is made perfect, fulfilled, completed, and show themselves most effective in your weakness. And therefore I will, at all the, all the more gladly, glory in my weakness and infirmities, that the strength and the power of Christ the Messiah may rest, yes, may pitch a tent over and dwell upon me. He said he knew that when this happened, that he was really looking to the Lord and working the grace of God in his life, it was like the Lord pitched a tent over him. He just really looked after him and protected him and everything happened. So the work of grace is there to enable us that are born again to overcome by accepting what? The death of our old way of life. We've got to change from what we were as far as God is concerned. It's telling us very clearly, enable us to overcome and put to death the old man, the old ways of life. To yield our life to righteousness, to doing things right in the eyes of God, overcoming our pride, our ego, and even the things of the world that tend to try and bring us back under the control of the enemy. They're so important. Remember that the grace of God is sufficient for you to overcome anything in your life, whatever it might be. Because God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Let's have a look in Second Peter, chapter 3. A few of these thoughts continuing. Just a couple of verses here. Second Peter, chapter 3, and verse 17. Peter says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things before, beware that ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Again, it's a warning to realise that there are things that can trap us out, take away our joy and our love, that can ensnare us like a trap. It says, a growing grace. In verse 18, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, to him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. The spiritual growth is to grow in the ways of the grace of God. 
all that the grace of God can do for you in your life. So great grace is meant to actively and continually work in your life all the time. Paul credited his uh, success in his ministry not by his own substantial labours and if you read the Bible he put into so much effort doing so much for the Lord wherever he went. He said what it was wherever I went the grace of God was always there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10 it says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So he had this wonderful understanding that the grace of God was always with him while he looked to God. So it's bringing out the point that grace is ongoing. Grace is a benevolent act of God that will work every day in your life. Without which, without the grace of God, we can do nothing, the Bible says. You need to understand that grace is greater than our problems and our sins, our difficulties, the ridicule of others, that the grace of God is always great. We've got to understand that the grace of God is more abundant, more available than we even expect it to be. If you try and outgive God in anything, you can't. God's got so much in store that you grow in the ways of the grace of God than what you've already got now. It's an attitude, it's an approach to God that's so important because grace, it tells us in the scriptures, is more wonderful than words. It's an action. And so the more that we value and we take care of our relationship with the Lord and his people because it involves our relationship with others that are close to us and others that are brethren in Christ, the more the Lord will give us to us in our lives. In First Corinthians, I just refer to it now, in chapter 3 and verse 10 it says, According, Paul writes here, in this, uh, according to the scripture, to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. Because God building our life together, putting it together. He says, I've laid a foundation and another builds thereon, but let every man take heed of how he builds thereon. The foundation of our life in Christ is the rock. Sure, unbroken foundation will never move. But let's show God by building on our foundation. Like we read in First Peter chapter four, going another scripture. In verse ten, as every man has received the gift, 
even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold house of God. Every one of us can have that same care one for another because it is the manifold grace of God in our life. So the final thought I want to say is that for anyone that might be new here today that have not embraced the born again experience, have not been baptized, have not been full of the Spirit for their limits of speaking in tongues, we want to commend to you that if you want to be saved from this world and the trouble and the strife and the look that's happening in the world at the moment, just one little act President Trump said that Israel's capital is Jerusalem and the world is in uproar. One spoke and this spoke. It is Israel's capital, but the opposition is great. And so we want to commend to you that the world might fall apart if you feel with the grace of God will be saved to the uttermost and you'll never fall apart. You'll change in a moment the truth of an eye and you're born again but the promise before you and you'll meet the Lord in the air ever to be with him and that's not his son and all the things that